Good morning. My name is Marshall Shelley, and I'm not Ray Kohlbacher. Um, if you, like me, are a football fan, you will recognize that this week is the beginning of training camps, and uh, it was about this time last year that a phrase was introduced into our collective consciousness that causes fear to run up and down the spines of real football fans. That phrase, replacement refs. I am a replacement preacher today. <laughs> and I hope the, uh, the fear running up and down your spine is uh, not quite as bad as for the prospect of replacement refs. But uh, this, we are, we're tackling a, uh, you know, a, a sermon today that uh, you know, I hope that you'll be able to make a call on at the end of, and uh, there's at least three, three possibilities. After listening to this sermon, you can say, incomplete, uh, did not connect, or you could say, out of bounds, way out of bounds, or you can say, completion, something connected here, and uh, we'll, see how that, uh, we'll see how that goes. We are in a series on uh, miracles, and for the last several weeks we've been looking at uh, you know, specific miracles and what we can learn about them, about, uh, about God. And um, one of the things I'd like to distinguish today is the fact that miracles are the example, the principle, the purpose for them we need to get elsewhere. So today I would like to look at what is the purpose of, uh, of miracles, of God's supernatural activity in our world, and um, what can we learn about that? We're going to be looking at a specific miracle today, but before we do that, I would like to uh, illustrate this principle with a uh, cultural icon. How many of you recognize this man? Just about everybody recognizes this man known as Superman, or to be more precise, to those of you who are real, fa real fans, Kal-El. Comes from another planet, has superpowers, super and the ongoing plot tension throughout all of the Superman formats, whether it's comic books, whether it's TV shows, whether it's movies, is not whether or not he has superpowers, but whether or not he should use them, right? I mean, after all, especially that x-ray vision thing. You know, when is the right time to use x-ray vision? I mean, after all, he could be the ultimate TSA agent, couldn't he? At the, going at the airport, we would not need no stinking metal detectors. All we need is a, is a superman who can, with a glance, tell whether or not anything uh, inappropriate is being uh, carried on. But the question throughout these movies is whether or not it's a good idea for him to use his x-ray vision in certain situations. Well, there's another guy that we've been introduced to if you've seen the most recent Superman movie, and it's this guy. There is no tension at all for this guy. This is General Zod. He is, uh, well, you, th you think he's the good guy or the bad guy? Just look at that face. That is, a, that is clearly a bad guy's face. But there is no tension for General Zod about whether or not he should use his superpowers. He's got superpowers too, but uh, he, there is no restraint on General Zod. Whenever there is... Uh, Whenever there's an opportunity, he's going to use his, uh, his uh, superpowers to dominate, to destroy enemies, to intimidate, to put everything possible under his control. And he doesn't think about whether the use of his powers will have a positive or negative impact on the bigger picture. He just wants everything under his own power. Well, Jesus is not a superhero. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. Um, but... He, 
miracles, his, his supernatural powers, do tell us something about him because of the way he uses them and uh, the purpose that they serve. I'd like us to uh, take a look at what Jesus' purpose is about, how he himself put it into words, and uh, this is how the Gospel of Luke describes it. Jesus went to Nazareth. This is the town where he'd been brought up. This was his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. So I commend you, those of you who are here in church, you are doing something that was customary to Jesus, going to worship on a weekly basis. I commend you. You're, that's a, a Christ-like uh, practice. He stood up to read, and, on the scroll, and, on, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying, this is what I'm about. This is why I'm here, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set free the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I have to confess, the first time I, I read those verses, I, did not, uh, I didn't understand. In fact, I misunderstood them. You know, I, um, smug little me started thinking, why would Jesus do that? Why would he free prisoners? Don't at least some of those people deserve to be in there? Why would he want to set everybody free? Well, I was blind. I was obsessing on the wrong things. That was, that's not what Jesus was talking about. I was one of those that Jesus was talking about who needed some recovery of sight. I wasn't uh, physically blind, but I was spiritually blind. I couldn't see what he was talking about. This is what Jesus was talking about. He said, I have come to deliver people from what binds them, what, what holds them in bondage. He is setting captives free, not just from jail cells, although sometimes that happens, but he frees us from our limited imaginations, from sin's bondage, from oppression of many different kinds, from the inability to see what God is doing in this world, and to recognize the wonder of deliverance, of God's favor, of his grace, of the joy of living with God, both here and now, and in eternity. And Christians throughout history have recognized that this is what God is about, to deliver us from, as 1 John puts it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And there's a famous prayer that Christians have prayed for at least 400 years. It's this one. From all the deceits, from all the deceptions of the world, the flesh, and the devil, spare us, good Lord. And that's what uh, Jesus said he was here to do, was to, to spare us, from, from, was to deliver us, to free us from those deceptions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes being freed from those deceptions requires a miracle, and that's what we're going to look at uh, today. One of the most intriguing and fascinating stories in the Bible, I confess it's my, it's my favorite Jesus story. It's got drama, it's got just some head-scratching details that you just say, what? And... Uh, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and uh, keep this portion open before you. It's Mark chapter 5. If you take the uh, Bible in the pew rack or the tape, uh, chair rack in front of you, page one th uh, 1006. But let me read it to you, and then we will uh, unpack these verses. 
Mark chapter 3, verse 1. They went across the lake, this is Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now this is the, Jesus was sort of on the northwest side of the lake. He went to the far east side of the lake. Uh, And this is what Jesus and the disciples would have seen as they were in the middle of the lake going to the eastern shore. There were hills there. This is the uh, the base of the modern-day Golan Heights. And um, this was a uh, made up of ten cities that made up the Decapolis. Deca, ten, polis, Indianapolis, uh, Indian city. This is the Decapolis, ten cities. And it was inhabited by Gentiles, non-Jews, who lived in a very different Greek culture. This was not Jewish territory. and on that, uh, on that shore, there were hills like this one. And uh, these hills were marked with limestone caves that uh, the people there used as tombs. And this will become an important detail later in the story. Next verse. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an unclean or an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Jesus, who came to set captives free, meets a deeply conflicted man. This man man was ironically, uh, had been chained with iron chains, and he had freed himself from those iron chains. In one sense, he was unchained, but was he free? Not at all. He might have been unchained outwardly, but he was chained inwardly, tormented by voices, by spirits that gave him no peace. Now, I should probably pause at this point and say that I know there's a number of us in this congregation, myself included, who have have experienced mental illness with with loved ones, with those who are are close to us, and uh, some of the things that this man evidences are similar to certain situations that we have with mental illness today. Many mental illnesses are not caused by the same thing that caused this man's condition. Uh, Many mental illnesses are caused by chemical or hormonal imbalances and need to be treated with medications and uh, therapy and and prayer. Um, What caused this man's condition was something different, as we're going to see. It was bondage of a different sort. Try to picture this man. His hair had been uncut for months. He was alienated from his family. He was self-destructive. He was naked, cutting himself, perhaps in a fit or a seizure, or simply uh, cutting himself to cause himself external pain to mask the internal pain that he was feeling. He was a tormented, truly a tortured soul. This is level five, this is a category five level of darkness. But even in this level of darkness, Jesus was there. Next verse. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, the man ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Just pause there for a second. It's interesting that this man who is tormented in so many ways, Jesus shows up. He goes toward Jesus, not away from him. Um, fascinating. What did, what, did he, what did he know of Jesus? We don't know. But he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. And that says something about the man's condition, wasn't it? Seeing Jesus 
and fearing that he would be tortured. What trauma had this man gone through to assume that uh, when he saw Jesus, he would be tortured? For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. This is what we call demonization at an extreme level. He was no doubt hearing voices. He spoke with a voice that was not his own. When he said, my name is Legion, for we are many, who's the we he's talking about? Certainly not the naked man. We is referring to those voices, those unbidden forces that tormented him. And Legion knew that Jesus was capable of evicting them, even though they were many, and Jesus was one. Now, a legion was the largest unit in the Roman army, approximately four to 5,000 legionnaires. It's the size of what the U.S. Army would call a brigade. And a legion was not a gentle force of mercy in the ancient world. There were no such things as humanitarian peacekeeping missions in the Roman Empire. Romans used local military units for police actions. When a legion showed up, it was when things were about to get ugly. Maybe this man had seen atrocities carried out by a Roman legion. A Roman legion had gone through the area, in fact, had removed the uh, Decapolis from the jurisdiction of Israel, uh, the previous generation, and it was now under the jurisdiction of Rome, populated by people who were not Jews. Perhaps this man had seen atrocities carried out by Roman legions, and what he had seen had left a scar upon his mind and his soul. Whatever the reason, whether they were just because they were many or because they had something in common with Roman legions, the spirits called themselves legion, and now this man was in a living hell, literally. What causes a condition like this? What leads to a person being demonized, whether mildly or severely, as this man was? I don't know, specifically. But I do know that Scripture makes a mysterious reference to unintentionally giving the devil an opening to your soul. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, talks about anger. And many of us, myself included, know the struggle with, with anger at times. Ephesians 4, verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Lots of things can give the devil a foothold in our souls. Some of the most common are ongoing anger, addictions, drug abuse, sexual abuse, cruelty, pornography, the occult. Lots of things have been associated with the beginnings of this kind of torment. I don't know what led to the demonization of this man, but being under the influence of the demonic certainly had several consequences for this man, as it does for people today. The first is alienation. Such influence destroys healthy relationships. He was separated from his family and his loved ones. He lived in tombs as if something inside him had already died or wanted to. There was a loss of freedom. His life was out of control. And when you succumbed to many of these um, initiating behaviors, self-control is damaged. When you give in to anger or lust or greed or any other vice, it feels like you're free at first, but you're actually losing your freedom bit by bit. It produced an inescapable pain and torment. There was a loss of peace, and he couldn't change his condition by himself. 
But as noted earlier, it's interesting that despite the destructive influences on his life, when Jesus came near, the man went toward him, not away from him. Despite his misgivings, despite the voices in his head objecting, saying, don't send us away, he was able to come to Jesus, perhaps knowing even if he could not say it, that Jesus could deliver him. Next verse gets us to uh, one of the most fascinating parts of this, uh, this story. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, then rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Wow. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? It would have been terrifying, but I'd love to have seen it. According to Luke's version, you know, three of the Gospels tell, uh, tell this story. In Luke's version, it gives a little more detail. It indicates, Luke 8, chapter 31, that the demons knew that Jesus intended to send them into the abyss. That's the, uh, that's the pit. That's the, the place uh, prepared for the devil and his angels where they will be bound for eternity. Luke says that the, uh, the demons said, don't send us to the abyss, send us into those pigs. So what happens? The demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss, but to send them into the pigs. And so demons go, Jesus says, okay. And the demons go into the pigs and then into the abyss. Hmm. You just wonder about Jesus' sense of humor. But there's a couple other things that I find sort of comical about this. This, uh, this whole episode tells us a couple of things. Number one, that this was not Jewish territory. You don't find that much ham and bacon in Jewish territory. <laughs> Jesus was clearly among Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and um, this was evidence of it. Number two, and this is really sensitive, this tells us the demons can indeed inhabit animals, and that explains a bunch of your cats. Sorry. So I'm a dog guy, and I... Uh... It is fascinating that Jesus consents to their request to go into the pigs, but it does not change the demon's destination. The demons were evicted from the man, and the man was freed. Why did Jesus permit the demons to go into the uh, herd of pigs? Well, perhaps that dramatic event was needed to convince the man and the people in the area that the man was indeed free. Because I'm sure there would be a lot of doubt if uh, it had been a quiet, undramatic thing. People would say, really? Uh, what if they come back? I mean, maybe he's just masking what's going on. Uh, but that would have been something to see, hogs running like lemmings into the sea. But this whole episode also raises a lot of questions that I'm the first to admit I can't answer. Number one, who paid for the dead pigs? I don't know. Um, did the demons cause the pigs to run into the water, or was that Jesus' idea? I don't know. Did the pigs sink or float? I don't want to think about that one, but I can't help it. Were there just a little 2,000 bobbing piglets out there? I, I don't know. A lot of questions. And more importantly, what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? Did they indeed go to the eternal abyss? forever bound there, or did they just wander around looking for a new host to inhabit? I don't know. But those details that we, don't, that we aren't able to answer should not cloud the main point of this miracle, that the man formerly living naked in the tombs, tormented by unclean spirits, was a new man. 
Next verse puts it this way. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town in the countryside, probably saying, it wasn't our fault, uh, if, if it were like me. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Miracles don't always make Jesus popular. After delivering this man from his demons, the people wanted Jesus, just, just go away. Perhaps they were upset by the loss of the pigs. If so, they were more concerned with the value of hogs than with the value of a man's soul. And one of life's supreme dangers is to value things more than people. Perhaps that's what was going on. Or perhaps they were frightened to have someone with Jesus' clearly supernatural power involved in their neighborhood. But Jesus agrees to leave, and then an interesting interchange takes place. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. You know, there were some times when Jesus would perform a miracle and he would tell people, you know, you don't need to say anything about this. It'd probably be better just to keep quiet. In this case, he told the man, go tell your family, friends, and neighbors what I've done for you. And that's a challenge. We don't know how the man's message was received. Maybe people welcomed him with open arms. Maybe they were suspicious. Maybe they expected a relapse. Who knows? But this we do know. Three chapters later, Mark chapter 8, Jesus goes back to this area, to the, to the area of the Decapolis, to teach, and 4,000 people show up to listen to him. Might it be that the man's testimony had something to do with people wanting to come and listen to Jesus a short time later? Well, let me ask one more question as we consider this story. We've, we've asked what was Jesus' purpose in his miracles. In this place, we clearly see that Jesus is here to set a captive free, and this man was captive to spirits that uh, were holding him in bondage. And Jesus did proclaim the good news, and he freed, he set this captive free. My question was, what about the other uh, purpose in this? What is the devil's purpose in doing something like this to a man living in the tombs. Um, is the devil like Zod, the evil uh, nemesis in the Superman movie? Does he just do random acts of meanness? Or does he have a purpose for his acts of meanness? Why does the devil torment someone like this? And to, uh, it sure seems like bad PR. If the, uh, if the devil is seeking followers, it seems like... Um, this is about the worst case study you could have. What does he gain from this kind of reputation? Usually Satan makes sin look enticing. After all, pornography, gluttony, consumerism, anger, all of, all of these standard, envy particularly, all of these um, deadly sins usually come in very attractive packages at first. And uh, it seems like we're getting a really good deal. Only later does it, uh, does it turn ugly. But this guy, there's nothing attractive about him at all. You know, the devil ought to fire his marketing firm, his advertising agency. This guy doesn't make the devil look, uh, look appealing whatsoever. What is the purpose in the devil doing this kind of thing to this man? 
I, did, I honestly didn't have the answer to that question, so I usually figured that's a, that's a good discussion question. So a few, few years ago, I was uh, leading one of the Bible studies here at Parkview with our, um, with our manna ministry, and I love studying the Bible with people who are homeless because sometimes some of the most insightful uh, glimpses into Scripture come in that setting. And, uh, and uh, so I asked that question. We were looking at this, at this passage, and I said, why does the devil do that to someone? What's he gain? Uh, and I couldn't think of a possible answer to that question. And one of the guys in the group, Hobie, said, oh, that's easy. He said, oh, really, Hobie, uh, what's the answer? What's the devil gain? He said, well, the devil opposes the will of God, doesn't he? Yeah. And what's God's will? That people would love God and love each other. He says the devil's purpose is to prevent that. So he uses fear, intimidation, uh, anything that will keep people from loving God and loving their neighbor. And it sure appears that the devil's tactics worked with this guy because he was all by himself in the tombs. Everybody stayed away. Nobody but Jesus came near. And I thought... Whoa, Hobie, why don't you teach the rest of the class? That's, uh, that's good stuff. Hobie's point is a really good one. The man in the tombs was scary, threatening, intimidating, seemingly hopeless. And that's one of the devil's, uh, devil's tactics, is to create situations that are seemingly hopeless. People stay away out of fear. That's a different kind of captivity than the evil one, uh, inflicted the man with, but he was afflicting those around him with being too scared to, uh, too scared to do anything. To prevent us, the uh, devil wants to prevent us from loving those who are strange, different, scary, or intimidating. Well, what have we learned today? Number one, that spiritual warfare is real. Supernatural forces are at work. There are spirits that uh, torment, that, uh, that can keep us in bondage. Second, not only does God have a plan for your life, but Satan also has a plan for your life, wants to uh, destroy you, particularly wants to destroy hope, wants to destroy the ability to, uh, to enjoy the presence of God. But Satan also wants to prevent you from loving God and loving others. When Jesus comes to set captives free, this is part of it. My dad uh, died three years ago, and I miss him very much. And uh, in his final years, he, you know, he, he did begin to um, uh, experience some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's. And uh, many times in his uh, final few years, I would ask, you know, I would, I'd go home to Denver and see him, Dad, how you doing? And his response was classic. I'm dressed and in my right mind. And I love that because we both knew what he was referring to. He is referring to uh, this man here, and, uh, and he recognized the gift of being able, to, um, being able to respond even to a simple question like, how are you? And he was dressed, and he was in his right mind, because both of those things are better than the alternatives. Jesus said, a thief, and he's referring to the devil, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life in all its fullness. And uh, that's Jesus' purpose, and to thwart the devil's purpose of stealing, killing, destroying, and keeping in, uh, keeping in captivity. Let me close with a more recent story of a man who was freed from a similar captivity. 
1956, we, we often think of the 50s as sort of a golden, uh, golden decade, don't we? But let me tell you a story that uh, offers an alternative uh, perspective on the 50s. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was a young Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama. Shortly after Rosa Parks had refused to give up her seat on the bus, Dr. King found himself leading a bus boycott against the racist policies of that particular city, and he lived under constant threat to his life. On January 27th, he was awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call. The voice said if he wasn't out of town in three days that they were going to kill his family. Well, Dr. King put the phone down, but he could not go back to sleep. With his wife and infant daughter in the next room, he made himself a cup of coffee, sat in the kitchen trying to figure out how to get away from Montgomery, Alabama. He later admitted that he was scared to death and paralyzed by fear. What could he do to ensure his safety and his family's safety? But then something happened, something very unexpected. King said he felt something stirring within him, an inner voice that spoke to him amid all the other voices of fear and panic. It said this, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you always, even till the end of the world. Dr. King said, the voice promised never to leave me and never to leave me alone. That night, he experienced the presence of Christ, and it changed the way he saw the world. Did it take away his fear? Not entirely, but it took away, took away the paralysis that fear can sometimes bring. He saw with new eyes. When you see that God is with you, you see the world differently. After that encounter in his kitchen with God, Dr. King said, I could stand up without fear. I could face anything. His new view of the world was about to be tested, however. Four nights later, true to the threat that the, had been made over the phone, while he was speaking at a rally one evening, someone came in and shouted that Dr. King's home had just been bombed with his wife and daughter inside. He ran back to the still smoldering house. His wife and daughter were okay, but a mob of angry African-Americans with guns and bats had gathered outside his home, ready to riot. King stood up on his, on his smoking porch and addressed the crowd. He said, He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know you love them. For what we are doing is right. What we are doing is just. And God is with us. The mob put down their guns and bats and started singing a hymn, Amazing Grace. Historians look back at that night as the turning point in the civil rights movement. It was the night that nonviolence and love were put into practice and it changed our nation, they said. But I think the historians are wrong. The real turning point to the civil rights movement was four nights earlier in Dr. King's kitchen when he encountered Christ, had his vision of the world transformed. God delivered him from paralyzing fear gave him new eyes, eyes to see not just a dangerous world in which we make decisions based on fear or intimidation or self-interest, but eyes that see that God is with us now and forever. He may not prevent bombs from destroying our houses. Bad things still will happen to us, but we are freed from the paralysis of fear, from demonic forces, from self-centeredness, and we are freed to serve, freed to love, Freed to enjoy the presence of God. As Jesus put it, he said, In this world you will have tribulation, 
But take heart, Jesus said, for I have overcome the world. A captive had been set free. So now you all have a call to make. Is that whole story way out of bounds? Did it just not connect? Or do you, are you saying, there's something here I need to receive. This, a, this is a reception. If that's the case, I would like to invite you to uh, you know, come down at the end of the service and uh, pray with the members of our prayer team. They would love to uh, pray with you for, uh, for deliverance from whatever it is that uh, is captivating you. Let's close in prayer. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, that you have promised to be with us, that you sustain us, and that you have freed us from our captivities, given sight to us when we are blind, and you have proclaimed the year of God's favor and invite us to live in, in, that, in that favor. As we go this week, we pray that your, your presence would be very evident to us. In Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen.